Okay, my name is Jerry, one of the pastors here, and it's my honor to be with you and open God's word with you. I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, in your copy of Scripture this morning. Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. If you are visiting with us, um, just want to welcome you again, as Brian did, and mention that we are uh, in the middle of pretty much a year-long series called Thread. And what we are doing is going through the entirety of Scripture and talking about the grand story of God. We've got a whole lot of different isolated stories in here that span thousands of years between the Old Testament and New Testament. And our task has been to take a look at each one of those narratives and find out what is the grand story that God is writing. Uh, we talk about the upper story, which is God and his sovereignty over the world, looking down upon it, uh, and, and what his end game is in life. And then we talk about the lower story, which is each one of these isolated narratives in scripture. What was going on there? Uh, what can we learn about God? What characteristics does he show? And then we talk about my story, me personally. Where do I play a part in this grand story of God. And when I say story, I'm not talking about something that's made up. I'm talking about the grand narrative of truth of who God is and what he's doing. So if you've missed a few of these weeks, or again, if you're just visiting us uh, and just being a part of things here in the last couple of weeks, I encourage you to go to our website. Uh, we've talked about the creation, the fall. We've talked about Noah. We've talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the covenants of love that God made with them. We've talked about Joseph, we've talked about Moses, we've talked about the Levitical laws and holiness, we've talked about Joshua and Ruth and David, um, and we've talked about King Saul uh, and David, two weeks on David, and today we're talking about Solomon. So a lot of great information there, I encourage you, if you're bored, if you're going on a run, or if you've got an hour-long commute, just load those podcasts up in there and refresh yourself. To see what kind of story is God writing. And how does this entire book tie together. So we're going to be involved in this thread series until June. And uh, we're back in it this week and we're excited to be back in it. Well today we are talking about Solomon. King Solomon. One of the kings of Israel. And uh, the story of Solomon is ultimately a story of regret. We're going to be spending our time in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to share a couple other passages from, uh, from uh, you know, the actual narrative of Solomon. But the story of regret is one that I think resonates with a lot of people. As you look back over your life, there are things that you wish you said or you wish you did. Or if only I had done this. And that narrative connects with us as a culture. As a matter of fact, there are many uh, songs and movies that have been written and been produced that have this idea of regret as a highlight theme. And I thought just for kicks and giggles this morning, we would uh, give you a couple of those um, as illustrations of our cult culture's response. And uh, yeah, so let's go ahead, Maestro, with uh, the first one. Tell me if you recognize this at all. This brings back memories. Yesterday. There it is. All my troubles seem so far away. Right? We know what that's talking about. And I wish that I could just stay. go back oh, and do something differently. How about, uh, how about this one here? 
Everybody's like, what is that, a sitar? What's going on? For any guy, any man, any father, you probably recognize that. Or you should. Remember this one? Came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to All these kids are like, what are you talking about? The cat's in the cradle, right? A story of regret. Man, I wish I had done more. I wish I had spent more time with my family, my son. Man, now my son is just like me. Tragic. How about this one? Representing the 80s here, baby. Come on. Pump this up for me, Chris. Come on. Feel it. Here it comes. If I could turn back time. Yeah, that's it. If I could find a way. Oh, yeah. Let's just bring that a nice slow fade. How many people remember that one right there? Remember when that came out? All right, lots of you. But we know what we're talking about, right? If only I could get a do-over. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. King Solomon, one of the kings of Israel, established by God, set up by God, started out great, but then made a series of unfortunate and devastating decisions. And here we have, in the wake of that, his remorse chronicled here in this book. And a lot of this is set up as advice to younger people. Solomon wrote, of course, Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes, and he wrote the Song of Solomon. And a lot of the Proverbs even, you get that hint. He's saying, my son, please listen to my instruction. Watch out for this. Watch out for this. And man, that's a noble thing to do, right? When you've had some experiences, when you've made some mistakes, to go ahead and look back to other people that are about in that time frame and to give them some advice, right? We got anybody here that is newly married within the first year or so? Raise your hand up really high like you're going to win a prize. Um, okay, awesome. We got some. So, uh, so I want to give a little advice to the, to the husband over here. Um, you know, I was trying to, in my first year of marriage, first couple of months probably, I'd never actually, how do you say, loaded a dishwasher before. So my wife is gone. I'm trying to take some initiative, trying to, you know, show her that I can help out around the house. And so I loaded this dishwasher up, you know, quite symmetrically. Everything was great. You know, silverware was facing the right direction. All that stuff was golden. And then it came to that moment where there's that little reservoir and you got to put the stuff in the, in the thing, right? So in this mind of mine, I'm like, well, you know, you got dishes in the sink and you use this stuff called Dawn to wash them in the sink. So it's both washing dishes. So why wouldn't you let the machine do the same thing? Well, here's what happened. I don't know if you really make that out or not, but there is about a 10-foot radius of soapy suds all over my kitchen floor. Because as that cycle started, and I was watching TV, kicking my feet up, lamenting what a wonderful husband I was. This soap was billowing out in every direction like a giant lava pond in my kitchen. Notice the Harry Potter glasses I've got on. I don't know if you can see those. Um, they, were, they were really sweet back in the late 90s. But anyway, so my advice, right? be careful with that. Do that the right way, right? Stupid, trivial, yeah. But we've all got those kinds of things, right? Some foolish decisions, you know, whatever that we can teach somebody else. 
But then there's foolish decisions in a totally different realm that involve morality and heartbreak and family, um, family dynamics and mistakes that you've made that will devastate. And that's what we're going to be diving into from the life of Solomon here in Ecclesiastes. To start things out, we want to, uh, if you're taking notes, I've got just three basic things that we're going to unpack here for you. And the first one is simply this, as we talk about Solomon, we need to recognize that Solomon was set up for success. He was set up for success. The table was set before him. The keys were given to him. David had been a king of Israel. He had experienced incredible military victory. The nation had grown as a result. They were wealthy. And there was a lot of great things going on in the nation of Israel. And now it was David's time to hand the keys over to his son Solomon. There's, a, there's an angst that we feel when we think about handing our kids something that has already been worked for and paid for. Right? How many people would recognize or would lament and see, when you see kids at, at uh, you know, the shopping um, center or when you see kids at Disney, little kids, or even in your own life, your own kids, you're like, why aren't you thankful for anything? Why aren't you grateful for anything? Do you have any idea how much this costs? Right? The whole idea of spoiling kids or spoiling teenagers or giving people stuff that they didn't earn ultimately can be a big disservice. Now, in our culture, we love uh, stories and narratives of people that had nothing and kind of brought themselves up and educated themselves and despite their background, despite the lack of opportunity, really made successful lives, right? We know a lot of those. We've seen those and we love to celebrate those. But at the same time, there's a little bit of um, angst when it comes with somebody who starts out up here and is a spoiled brat and is given everything and we see them squander it all. Such is the case of Solomon. As a matter of fact, we know that this, uh, this is important to remind people of what it costs for something. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is giving the command to Moses to tell the nation of Israel, right? After he had led them through and finally into the promised land, he says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, you, you know, and, and all these great things, right? And he says, you know, uh, remember these statutes and, and kind of put them up on the, on the gates of your doors and up on your walls and write them all over and talk about them when you're walking along the road and when you go to sleep and constantly be reminding your children of these things. Why? second part of Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, so that when they get into this land and they're living in houses that they didn't build and vineyards that they didn't plant and all these other riches that they didn't work for, they will not forget the Lord their God. And so we see this element of riches and wealth and splendor and privilege can have the capacity easily, very soon, if not guarded, to slip into forgetfulness of God. 
And you look at Solomon, and just by way of, you know, just reminder in a brief history here, David was king for many years, and now it was time for Solomon. And you think about Solomon, you know, he saw uh, in his father the, the passion and the success of what happens when someone follows after God. Right? You remember all the nation of Israel would chant these great chants about David. And, and, uh, and you can imagine little Solomon as David you know, put him on his knee or was tucking him in to his little cot at night or whatever. You can imagine little Solomon's like, Daddy, tell me that story about the giant again. Did you really cut off his head and like lift it up? And what was that like? Anything like my son, they love the gory tales, you know, right? But tell me these stories again about, you know, all these great victories and everything. And he, he saw that his father was successful. He also saw the heartbreak and damage that sin can do. Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. The very same one that, Sol that David had an affair with. Immorality that led to devastation. So Solomon remembers all those stories, hearing whispers around. And you look even at Solomon's brothers, they were a disaster. David's other sons, one of them, Absalom, tried to kill his own father, tried to overtake the throne. So there was complete family wreckage. But now here's Solomon, who in the eyes of David and Bathsheba, finally somebody who can bring peace to our nation. The word Solomon actually means peace. That's the root word. And so David and Bathsheba, after everything happened, and it was terrible, confessed my sins. God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Finally, now a son is born that's going to have the kingdom. Lord, bring peace to my heart, knowing that there's somebody that can carry on and love you. Bring peace to this country. No more wars. No more bloodshed. Bring peace. And here's Solomon on the scene. And he starts out pretty well. Listen to David's challenge to him in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is the inauguration of his son. He says, okay, now son, um, he says this, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. If there's ever a great mantra for fathers to share with their sons, that's it right there. Be strong, son. Show yourself a man. It's reminiscent of what we see in Joshua chapter 1. Right? That whole idea of be strong and courageous. Don't depart from the ways and from the words of God. And as a matter of fact, two other times, David says to Solomon, be strong and courageous. That same phrase. I love it. In this same lament, uh, David actually kind of gives a little bit of a disclaimer for his son. Uh, this is always kind of what we call a backhanded compliment. David's there in front of all the people. He says, uh, now my son uh, is going to be king. He says, oh, by the way, he's young and very inexperienced. Uh, please help him and be patient with him. You imagine Solomon's like, gee, thanks, Dad. But he was set up for success. Early on, he prayed to God. God appeared to him in a vision and said, I will give you whatever you want. Solomon said, give me wisdom. Give me a discerning heart. Who am I to judge all these people? 
He says, I'm but a mere child. I'm 20 years old. I don't even know how to go in, how to come out. I don't know anything. God, please just give me a sound mind. Give me a discerning mind. I want to do what's right. I want to glorify you. And so God did give him wisdom. And as a matter of fact, God said, well, because you didn't just ask for riches and because you have such a humble heart, I'm going to give you riches too. That's a thought for us in itself, right? When we seek God's will first, all these other things are going to be added to us and God will supply all of our needs. That's what Jesus said. So he had this great opportunity and he started out well and he asked for wisdom. Wisdom was given. He was entrusted with the whole idea of building this great, beautiful temple for the first time, a solid standing structure that would be the an, an inhabitable place for God where he was going to exist in the Ark of the Covenant and everything else for all these hundreds of years it had just been in a tent but now we're going to build a big beautiful temple and it took him years and he gathered all the people and everybody gave gold and silver and they structured it and it was great and it was beautiful and it was amazing and what's really moving again this is years after Solomon was inaugurated as king it's the opening of the temple, and scripture says Solomon's down on his knees with his hands up in the air like this. He says, oh great God, who am I that I should be the one to offer this to you? And he says, oh Lord, forgive individual sins in this nation. Forgive our sins collectively as a country. He said, if there's any foreigners, if there's any aliens that come in, not, oh, let's squander and you know, destroy them. He says, let them come. Let them see your goodness. Let them come to you. Forgive their sins as well. This incredible, epic, Billy Graham-worthy prayer in front of the nation. And he ends it by saying, let there be no other gods before you. And that's in 1 Kings chapter 8. So he started out amazing. Here's my declaration. We're not going to have any other gods before you. I've seen the evil of that. We're not going to do it. He started out great. Number two, something happened. It was a slow fade. It wasn't overnight. It was a slow fade fade he was spoiled by seduction this whole idea of wealth and power that he was given corrupted him the book of ecclesiastes that i mentioned was written way at the tail end of his life you kind of get his laments here ecclesiastes chapter one verse one caught my attention right out of the gate he says these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. The preacher, he calls himself. So as a pastor, as somebody that's up in front of people, Solomon's saying, yep, I've been there. I've been up in front. I've had the spotlight. And I abused it. And here's what happened. Skip down to, uh, to verse 14. Here's the sum of all my knowledge. He said, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold all is vanity and a striving after wind all is vanity all is meaningless none of it means anything as a man who had everything i can tell you possessions and pleasures all of this means nothing 
And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, I want you to just circle that whole section in your Bible or highlight it on your device. We're not going to take the time to read through it. But he lists out for us all the things that seduced him. And there's nine key themes in there, and I've highlighted them for you here. The first one is laughter, folly, just goofing around, just entertaining himself. He said, you know what, I chased after that. I tried to find supreme satisfaction in that. Didn't work. The second one was wine. We can broaden that to talk about addictions, to alcohol, to drugs, to food. Anything that will overcome you and overtake you. And, you know, Solomon's like, oh, I had much wine all the time. And you know what? I ended up empty after that. It didn't work. Number three. Solomon said, I built all these incredible buildings. I built a house for God. I built a house for me. I built all this great stuff. Success. Accomplishments. How many of us in our lives, when we think about, man, what's really satisfying? Where are we spending our capital, our finances, our time? What are we chasing after? How many people would say in their heart of hearts, you know what I want? I want to be successful. I want people to think that I matter, that I'm a part of this team, and that they need me. That's listed as one of the things that is meaningless and empty. He talks about nature. He talks about, I tried to find supreme satisfaction in vineyards and in pools and gardens and trees that I planted. I tried to find satisfaction there. It didn't happen. He talks about servants. All these servants that he had. We can define that as leadership. Right? It feels good to be a leader and know that if I tell that person to go there, he's going to go. I'm going to tell you to do that. You go bring me that. You work on this over here. There's a power that comes with that in leadership. And for some, that's what they're chasing after. Man, I can't wait to get up that ladder and get more leadership and more. And I want to be more powerful. Solomon said that, that ended up being like chasing after wind as well. Talked about money. He had more silver and gold than anybody. It's great. He talks about, I've got male and female singers. Solomon had singers. Personal little a cappella choir, apparently, that came in and entertained him. But that's the key. Entertainment, chasing after things that are going to amuse us. And you can just see Solomon sitting in his throne room, sitting on his throne. Bring me something else to make me fatter, to make me enjoy more pleasure, to amuse me even more. And then you've got the last one there. Talking about sexuality and sensuality. Scripture says that Solomon had 700 wives. I want all the guys in here just to say that number out loud. Just say 700. 700. Think if you had just seven wives. One for each day of the week. You know? Solomon comes home and is like, wait, she's, now she's asking me about my day and my dreams and aspirations? 
I mean, how do you even keep the, the name straight? I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse to have 700 wives. Scripture also says he had 300 concubines. Now we understand in that culture, especially since Solomon made all these deals with all these foreign countries, part of making a pact with a country was for them to give you a bunch of people as possessions. Maybe they were the king, part of the king's uh, family, extended family, daughters, whatever. They would give 50 uh, women or slaves or whatever. It's terrible. It's awful. But that was part of the context of the culture here. So when we say, were these really all his wives, like having dinner with them? And like 700, that's like, you know, for two years you could be having dinner with a different wife, you know? What did all that actually look like? We don't really know exactly what the nuances are, but we do know that it was wrong. And we do know that God set it up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, to have one wife. And that was his plan, to be committed to that person. But Solomon summarizes it for us in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Here's what he said. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Now listen to this very closely. This is where Solomon is basically saying, in my foolishness, even though God gave me wisdom and that worked out well for a while, I let that wisdom go by the wayside and instead it was, what do I want? And he said, for all of my toil, this was my reward. In other words, I deserve this. I want you to take time later on or sometime in the next week, read through that. I want you to circle every I and every me that you see in this passage, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Because there are dozens of them. And Solomon's saying, you know what, it's all about me, me, me. What I want, what my eyes see, what my heart wants, what my body wants. I'm just going to try and fill my life with that. Because I deserve it. And it's funny because, man, when you talk about this element of sensuality and ro romantic and sexual pleasure. And, man, that's, you look at that and you're like, dude, what in the world are you doing? And yet you look at our culture and how far we've come over the last 30 or 40 or 50 years. And how sensuality is completely rampant and if somebody's desiring to stay pure yourself or to keep your family pure, you're going to be on alert 24 hours a day. It doesn't matter what you're watching. It could be a benign bowling tournament. Why you would watch bowling, that's a bad illustration. It could... No offense to anybody here. You could be watching something completely normal, then all of a sudden a Hardee's commercial comes on or a Carl's Jr. hamburger commercial comes on. And you're in shock and horror and fumbling around trying to find the remote to keep your kids' minds pure from this debauchery. You know what I'm saying? It's a hamburger. And it's everywhere. And I think the enemy is having... A whole lot of victory in this culture through this realm. One of the things that Solomon chased after. When you talk about the rampant nature of it, the Barna 
research group, which is a completely reputable, honorable organization, gave us these recent statistics. 77% of men look at pornography at least monthly. That means you're, you're there in the basketball stadium, you're walking down the street, you're in your workplace, just look around. Almost 8 out of 10 of these dudes that you see are trying to satisfy something through an image and through a screen. About 32% would say that they're addicted to it. 3 out of 10 addicted to it. And what's so sobering is when you look at the statistics in the church, they're almost identical. The enemy has been wooing and pursuing the hearts, not just of men, but women as well. Saying, chase after this. This will satisfy. This will give you great joy and delight. And it ends up completely empty. Ecclesiastes, as you move along in it, you start to get a little bit of an idea of understanding of, man, if Solomon could do it over with all these regrets, maybe you can trace back where some of these problems started. The first one is that he didn't take friendship seriously. And I'm not talking about friendship like you invite some guys over Monday night uh, or you go hang out with your girlfriends and go out for coffee or dinner and just talk about work and talk about life or basketball or whatever. I'm talking about deep-rooted who's in your life asking you the hard questions and pressing you towards God. Solomon did not have that. Look what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 9. He says this, you know what, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls up. And not another to lift him up. You're like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. I was just at a wedding and they talked about that. Well, that's great. You hear this a lot in weddings. And that's applicable to a marriage relationship. Absolutely. But Solomon is not talking about a marriage. Solomon's talking about woe to the one who doesn't have anybody there, who's not asking him questions, who's not diving deep, who won't take, you know, just the simple, oh yeah, everything's good, you know, fine. He, he bores down in and says, what's really going on in your heart? Woe to the man who doesn't have that. Because I'm willing to bet, as he started to make these allegiances and these alliances and they started to give gifts of 50 and 100 and 150 women or slaves or whatever, somebody wasn't being there like, hey Solomon, what are you doing? Dude, watch out. Do you remember what happened to your father? Don't you remember the heartache and, and how devastated the nation was and he was personally after that? Do you have that in your life? Is that a regret that you're going to look back on? Man, I wish I had that person. I wish I gave someone permission and expectation to ask me those things. It's funny, I meet a group of about 10 guys for discipleship. And every month or so we go over these character and competency questions to really leave no door unopened in our lives about what's going on. 
in two of the questions, there's about 30 of them, and two of the questions pertain to this strongly. There's no doubt that we need those people and should expect that we have those people in our lives asking us those questions. What else do we see? He didn't take worship seriously. Chapter 5, verse 2, listen to this challenge. He says this, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near and to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. He continues to say, don't be so free with your, with your speech. As a matter of fact, God is in heaven and you are here on earth, so let your words be few. Guard your steps. As it pertains to your relationship with God, be careful Solomon's saying, I'm the one that built the temple. I'm the one that dedicated the temple. But later on in my life, I was half-hearted. I had sin in my heart. I was willfully disobeying God. And yet, I was still there offering sacrifices. I was still there worshiping, saying huge, long prayers. He's saying, don't do that. Take it seriously. So what do we do about this? What are action items as it pertains to regret? A couple of ideas here for you. The first one, be present in the present. Be present in the present. Well, what are you talking about, be present in the present? Well, there's an element in our lives that is so forward thinking and what's next and what do I got to do next week or next month or how are we going to pay for college? What's going to be going on here? That mentally, emotionally, spiritually, we are absent from the present. There's an element of reality that is a gift from God to be able to recognize and enjoy it. And that's an ability. What do you mean? Well, look at what Scripture says. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. The ability to be present the ability to experience joy, to de delight in your work, delight in your kids, delight in your marriage, delight in your friendships, and delight in things that are godly is a gift from God. How often are we anxious or looking your head ahead and not totally engaged because we haven't taken time to be present in the present? Number two, view each moment as a priceless opportunity to erase a future regret. View this moment today to take an opportunity to erase something that would be a future regret. The book of Ephesians chapter 5 verse 16 carries along the idea that says make the best use, make the most of each day of your time here on earth because the days are evil. And it may seem like the days drag by, but the years fly by, right? 
make the most of those. When we talk about regrets, and I just want to close with this idea. It's sobering to ask a human being, what would you do differently? I did a, bit, a little bit of legwork for this particular message this week and contacted seven or eight people and threw out three questions to them. If you could say something to your 12-year-old self, your 20-year-old self, and your 30-year-old self, if you could write them a letter, if you could send them a message, if you could turn back time and find a way to communicate with them, what would you say? And these are people in this body, in this family of believers. This isn't some random person on the internet. These are our people. Here's what they said. 12-year-old me. Don't wear that orange velvet turtleneck for picture day. You got some of those regrets. How about this one? Respect your younger brother and don't beat him up. You will need his friendship and his counsel later. How about this one? The girls that are making fun of you for wearing monogrammed sweaters, don't let them get to you. And don't get that mullet haircut. It might look cool to you now, but it is a beast to grow out. How about this one? Spend more time with your grandma. Ask her about her life. Write down her recipes. You will want to know how to make her chicken noodle soup when she's gone. Spend more time with the girl you will meet freshman year in PE class. You will become great friends, but please tell her about your relationship with Jesus. She's going to pass away before you get to your 20th high school reunion. What about to the 20-year-old me? At age 20, the boy you're dating right now is not the one. After five years together, he will break up with you right after Thanksgiving. Why not re- Order your priorities. Find a church on campus. Get connected with other believers. Pick up your Bible and read it. It will save you from a host of trouble. What about this? Someone said, be quick to forgive others and do not harbor bitterness. Forgiveness brings peace and bitterness is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to be affected. What about to the 30-year-old self? Somebody wrote down this. Put down your phone. Stop working. Your kids are growing up right before your eyes, and you're missing it. Another one wrote, you're 30, and you're still not a mom. You need to get out of this depressive funk and give it to God. He's got this. He's got great plans for you, and it will be better than you imagined. Trust me. You are so worried about your struggle with infertility that you have blinders on to everything else that's going on around you. When you talk about regrets and when you talk about the things that we wish we did, the good news here this morning is that you're alive right now. And that you're hearing me, you're breathing, you're listening, you're seeing, you're understanding and perceiving, hopefully, the regrets of someone else. 
how does this tie into the thread of all scripture, into God's great design and great story? Well, Solomon was obviously one of the huge kings of Israel who, because of his idolatry, because of chasing after all these things that don't desire and allowing sin into his life, the consequences of that is the nation of Israel was torn in two. It was the last time the nation would be united was under Solomon. It would then go on. There would be revolt. It would be Israel and Judah. Both of those parts would be invaded and in captivity, carried away, brokenness and destruction. Because Solomon did not follow after God with a whole heart. And in doing so, led others astray as well. My challenge to you this morning, man, what, what decisions are you going to make right now that you can look back on tomorrow and say, that's a regret that I erased. That's one that never existed. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you have created us as new beings. Lord, we thank you that your son Jesus promised that we would have full and abundant life. That we would have supreme joy in serving you. And Lord, this morning we pray that you would give us the ability to enjoy that. God, take away these lesser things. Take away these lesser joys, these lesser pleasures. God, I ask that you would allow us to recognize that you are so much greater are so much stronger than our sin that so easily entangles and so easily weighs down. So let there be freedom in this room this morning. Lord, let us learn a lesson of leadership from a king. And Lord, let us chase after the fullness of you, not futility. We love you, God. In your son's name we pray.